Welcome to the Keeney Interviews. Through this series, you will meet leading practitioners from the water sector and hear their stories. Together, we will address water challenges and discuss how best to face them. Keeney is the Malaysian word for current, and this initiative promotes the flow of ideas within the water sector. Hello and welcome to today's interview with Dr. Ian Campbell, Director of Retroecology, where he talks about knowledge transfer in the Mekong region from an Australian perspective. Dr. Ian has over 40 years experience in freshwater ecology and river management, working in Australia, Southeast Asia and PNG. He has worked as an, as an academic, a river basin management agency specialist, and as a consultant on projects in the water, mining and alpine resorts, amongst others, and has over 100 peer-reviewed publications. My name is Raymond Lam, and I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Ian Campbell. Ian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about knowledge transfer in the Lower, lower Mekong region from an Australian perspective. I'm hoping we could start with a bit of an introduction where you, could, where you could talk a bit about yourself, your background, and retroecology. Um, my background is in um, freshwater ecology, and particularly river ecology. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, did a PhD on life cycles of a group of aquatic insects, mayflies. Um, was employed as a lecturer at what was then Chisholm Institute of Technology, which got merged back into Monash, which is where I'd originally come from, mm-hmm. um, where I was a, an associate professor. Um, uh, I guess there were two different strands. Um, uh, I started ecology back in the 90s, um, as a vehicle for doing some consulting work, and particularly I was doing some consulting work for the Alpine Resorts Commission at that time mm-hmm. um, on alpine aquatic insects and management issues, um, primarily in ski resorts. Um, and at the same time, through uh, the work at Chisholm, um, we got involved in uh, our first international work when a colleague made some contact with Chiang Mai University right. and um, uh, a number of us, Barry Hart being the most notable, he was the head of department at the time in the Water Studies Centre, um, uh, were funded by OSAID um, to run a workshop on water quality management in tropical regions. And that was done jointly with Chiang Mai University and the Office of the National Environment Board in Thailand. Mm-hmm. Um, and it involved um, people from all of the ASEAN countries, um, specialists from all of the ASEAN countries. And that was run in Chiang Mai, oh, okay. I guess, the, the end of the 80s. Um, following that, I formed some linkages with some of the uh, professors at Chiang Mai University and we started some joint research mm-hmm. and um, I maintained that contact and I started having some Thai lessons um, and then in about um, 
Ecology specializes in freshwater ecology? Yeah, anything yeah. to do with rivers, particularly. Okay. Um, it, the, the name um, comes from the Greek, from rithrom, um, which means the flowing, the flowing part of, of rivers, the upstream part of rivers. Right. Um, so it was the, uh, basically river ecology. Oh, okay. Um, 
a name that nobody can spell that means river ecology. Um, <laughs> and so we're, I'm involved in doing some more stuff with the Mekong. They've just been doing a big environmental flows project and I've done the invertebrate part of that. Um, I've been doing some, um, running some uh, river monitoring projects for people like um, Golden Valley Water. Um, oh, I've done some stuff for the, uh, the Pakistan government on um, evaluating environmental flows proposals. Uh, oh. Bits and pieces. Uh, done some stuff as a as a expert witness in some legal cases. Today's interview topic: uh, knowledge transfer in the Lower Mekong region. Uh, Ian, could you please share your experience working in this region around lessons learned and insights gained by working on the ground with the local community while addressing the key challenges around knowledge transfer in terms of the differences in knowledge status, capacity, culture, socio-economic conditions and political circumstances? Yeah, look, I, I, it, it's a a really challenging thing mm-hmm. um, going to work in a in a completely different country in a completely different cultural environment cultural and political environment um, and the Mekong's a really interesting region a really important region because the Mekong's one of the world's largest rivers mm-hmm. um, certainly within the top 20 in terms of discharge. Mm-hmm. And it's in a, a really uh, politically challenging environment. Um, it, it's an area that's been uh, a, a region of um, a severe conflict. You had the American war in Vietnam. Um, you've had wars in Cambodia, um, wars in Laos. Um, it's an area where you've got, um, uh, I guess, a clash of influence um, between countries like the United States um, and China, um, mm. which uh, occupies part of the, the, the upper Mekong. Right. Um, so it's it's, a, it, it's it's been really quite interesting from that point of view, mm-hmm. and of course there've been. Uh, quite challenging interactions between the countries there. So that, um, uh, for example, Thailand and Vietnam were on um, different sides during the American war over there. uh, Thailand was uh, hosted a number of US bases. um, And of course, the current Vietnamese government um, were the people that the Americans were fighting against. Mm -hmm. You've also had clashes between Vietnam and China, um, and so on. It, it's it's an interesting, uh, and, and it's been a very politically challenging area. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess one of the challenges has been that um, there hasn't been, and, and particularly when when I first went over there. Um, there wasn't a very good knowledge base about the Mekong River itself. Um, there had been taxonomic studies on the fish, mm-hmm. and we knew that it was a highly diverse um, fish fauna. Um, I think there's something like 
800 described species. Um, oh. and, and people speculate that there could be well over 1,000 described species um, oh. when the taxonomy is finished. There was there have been long-term efforts to gather hydrological data on the river, um, set up in the times of the French, um, but there was really very little else. Um, there'd been a mapping project um, that had done a lot of the river but had never been digitised. And it was a, a really challenging area in terms of finding other work and getting access to it. Hmm. Um, and that was partly because of the, the troubled political history Right. Uh, of course, with the um, Khmer Rouge period, um, almost everybody who was qualified, um, you know, from, from teachers or academics or, or um, government officials, um, had either left the country or been killed. Wow. <laughs> My recollection is that at the time the Khmer Rouge were finally displaced, Cambodia only had eight doctors for the whole country left. <clears throat> and, and of course, many of those people didn't come back. Hmm. Um, written records that the Cambodian National Library had been pretty much destroyed, um, so it was difficult to find um, written records. In, in Thailand, you had um, a very diffuse academic effort, I suppose. Through all of those countries, there was not much research, uh, uh, not a strong research culture in the universities, um, I guess strongest in Vietnam and Thailand, uh, but uh, for the Thai, for, for both of those countries, um, they didn't have English as their first language. Um, in Thailand, many of the universities had, a, a, because they recognised that they needed to publish, so many of the universities had established their own, their own journals. Um, and sometimes they were general journals and sometimes they were science. Um, mm. So academics in the university, if they published anything, tended to publish in those journals. But those journals weren't indexed. Um, they didn't appear in computer databases. Um, they didn't get wide distribution. Right. None of the university libraries we looked at had all of the journals from the other universities, for example. Mm. So, so trying to find out what had been done and what was known was really quite difficult. I see. Um, and in fact, one of the things that we'd done during TASIP, we, we had a, a librarian come over and talk about the importance of cataloguing and information management and so on, for scientists and engineers. And, and that was quite interesting. Um, everybody in Thailand, everybody in Asia, as, as they are other places, were very enthusiastic about online data searching and, and using computer, computer mm. databases and so on. Yeah. And um, she had arranged in, in a workshop for them to have access to the computer databases, um, uh, some of the big worldwide databases. But we asked them to search for um, any information they could find about pollution in the Mekong River, not the Mekong, the Mekong, which is a river in Thailand. Okay. And they spent an hour or so searching and found nothing. 
Wow. And then we were able to show them at least seven papers, all published in those Thai university journals, um, <laughs> and, and uh, a number of them very good data. And the important thing was that while these global databases and so on are, are all very useful for getting global information, uh, a lot of the local information doesn't ever get indexed there. Mm. And you've got to use other tools and search other places to find that information. Right, right. Um, and and uh, I guess that the next step along was that uh, journals are expensive um, and universities, I mean, uh, those areas are relatively poor. Universities don't have a lot of money for their libraries. Mm-hmm. And there's not been a strong culture, certainly in uh, in Thailand and Laos, mm. of of reading and and doing library research. Mm. So libraries don't get valued as much as they are by at least some people in Australia. While you can use a computer database to find references, you couldn't necessarily find the journal articles, and that they. they um, also didn't have um, uh, electronic access because, once again, that's expensive. So they, did, they didn't have the money to pay for those sorts of things. Wow. So, for example, when I taught um, uh, part of a master's course at Chulalongkorn University, which is one of the wealthy and, and most prestigious universities in, um, in Thailand, in Thailand yep. one of the things I wanted the students to do was also read a journal article. These were, this was a, a Master of Environmental Economics. Um, none of these students had ever read a scientific journal article in going through their undergraduate. Hmm. So I um, included as part of my teaching um, a class exercise where they were in groups of three or four. Um, I would give each group a scientific article and then the next week the group would have to do a presentation on uh, on the article. Um, the problem I had was that they didn't have any ecological journals in their university library. They had just started to subscribe to ecology, and this would have been in what, 1990, uh, 1990, uh, yeah. in about 2000, okay. um, 1999. Um, I ended up having to, having to take articles out of science. Hmm. Um, and, and you don't get many good ecological articles in science. They tend to be kind of short, brief summary things. Um, but, you know, this was a university that had a, a, a biology department, a marine biology department, so on, uh, with quite a few ecologists working there, but didn't have um, the main ecological journal or any other ecological journals. It was really yeah. quite challenging to, then to, to encourage the students to start to to look at those, um, uh, to start to read journal articles and to to use the scientific literature. But I'm sure today that uh, things have now changed around, Ian? Would you say that? I I don't know. Look, I haven't been back to those libraries and they had had started to get um, uh, some journals and presumably they're trying to get um, increased access um, to journals. Um, But you're still not seeing... Um, 
much in the way of ecological literature um, mm. coming out of uh, of universities in those in those regions. I guess one of the other things for me as as an ecologist and, and biologist um, is that there's a a challenge because ecology and that sort of biology is not popular um, in academic institutions over there and is increasingly less popular in Australia as well, which is which is an increasing problem for us. Um, but um, e e ecology wasn't seen as a desirable thing to do um, for a number of reasons. You had to do it outside and... Um, mm. If you're working outside, your skin goes dark, and that's, that's considered, <laughs> you know, that's an issue. Um, it's hot. Um, it's uncomfortable. Um, people are quite frightened if they've got to go into the forest. They're very nervous about going into the forest. Um, and, and, and it's difficult for me to evaluate how valid that is, but certainly in recent history, it's been quite a risky thing because you've, you've had... You know, Khmer Rouge and various rebel groups and minefields and yeah. so on. Right. Um, but in Thailand, where you had less than that, less of that, you still found that uh, it, it wasn't seen as an attractive, attractive thing to do. It would be better to get a, a job in an air-conditioned office. In office, yeah. <laughs> and and it, but it also wasn't seen as a as a career mm. um, that was going to be very financially rewarding. Right. Um, and, I mean, there was, there was an interesting thing. Um, most of the academics in Thailand are women. I oh. think it's something like um, 60, 70%, maybe even higher. Wow. Um, and, and, mm. and, I mean, that's something that we would see as, as a good thing yeah. where we're trying to increase the number of women in, in academia. Women in water, especially, yeah. <laughs> but, but when I talked to them about why was this so, what, would, what is it they were doing right that we weren't, it was, oh, well, um, the men all want to go and work in business because you make more money. <laughs> it's all about the money. Huh? <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, you know, that, that's understandable. You're coming right. from countries where, which have historically been quite poor. Of course, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Thailand's the wealthiest of the lower Mekong countries, mm -hmm. um, and, and and it's doing quite well economically, but it's but it's still relatively poor um, compared with Australia. Mm. Um, uh, so there's a, there's a quite strong incent incentive therefore for, for people to try and find to get into careers um, that will be they'll make money so they can support their families. Right. Um, right. And and you know they're also going through this change where many of most of the kids in university would be still probably the first generation of their family to go to university mm. so it was you know computing and business and IT, uh, and, and yeah. engineering were the sorts of things that they were more interested in doing rather than yeah. things like um, ecology and, of and course. organismal biology <laughs> um, they, they, you're getting a boost in biology now, mainly in genetics, because it's um, it's seen that that, they, that that could be quite lucrative, lucrative. in the future. Yeah, and the demand is um, high. Yeah. And that, of course, then also leads leads to the whole thing of of um, capacity. 
Um, with the Mekong, uh, well, there were, there were a number of interesting things. One of them is that, that because there wasn't a strong research culture, uh, it, it was quite interesting. At MRC, I was quite keen to try and foster <coughs> research by local institutions mm-hmm. into the Mekong. I mean, one of the, the big things that we've got in Australia that we we don't even really appreciate um, because it's it's so in, embedded in our culture is that you've had uh, 50 years of graduate students doing work on things in the Murray-Darling Basin, for example. Mm. You know, and, and it could be fish ecology and it, it, it could be leaves falling into the river and it could be the carbon budgets, all, all sorts of stuff. Um, hydrological stuff, geomorphological stuff. There's all sorts of research going on. Right. But you don't get that um, in the Mekong, hmm. in that region, and not just for the river, but for, for anything else. And I spoke at, oh, I don't know, I, I gave talks probably at 10 or 12 universities um, in the four and a half years I was there, um, w- was invited to give talks about MRC or, or about the Mekong. Um, and on, at the end of every talk, um, I made the point that we were really keen to encourage research um, on any aspect of the Mekong. Mm. Um, and so if, if people had proposals they wanted to put up, we would be happy to look at funding them. Um, now, if you did that in Australia, you'd be swamped. Um, but the whole time I was in four and a half years at, at MRC, I only got three people approaching me asking for funding for research. Wow. One of those was um, a Cambodian guy who was studying at Asian Institute of Technology who wanted to look at pesticide use around um, Thomas Up Great Lake. And, and we funded his project. Uh, we, we provided some funding for all of them. One of them was an Australian girl, Isabel Beasley, who was working on dolphins, mm. uh, um, Mekong dolphins. Um, our, our rule with um, people who were uh, who were not members of the riparian countries, who were not citizens of the riparian countries, was that we would contribute funding towards work that they were doing in the riparian countries. So uh, what we uh, provided for her was some funding to pay for employment of local people to assist with her research and her local travel and her local expenses. But we wouldn't contribute to stuff back in Australia, for example. Mm. Um, And then the the third one was a um, a Cambodian student of Monash University who'd actually been an undergraduate student of mine before I went to the Mekong, um, and we funded him um, a contribution towards his um, PhD fees at Monash and then his in-country work, uh, and he worked on um, primary production um, and food webs in Tomasaf Great Lake. So we, we funded all three that, that we got, but, you know... it. It was very frustrating and, and saddening that we weren't getting more proposals mm. um, from 
other local people um, and from other local universities, even even though we were actively soliciting them. And there was a there's a problem then for things like Mekong River Commission um, is that when you're trying to set something up, um, you need to be yeah you need to find people who've got the capacity to do the work, um, and you know we're very keen um, always to, to to use local people. Um, but that was very difficult. Um, when I first set up um, biomonitoring, um, the way that we did it, it, it actually turned out to be good in a number of ways. What we wanted to do was to set up biomonitoring of the same sort that we that we operate in Australia and in North America and in Europe and, and elsewhere, mm -hmm. um, where you would sample in Australia, um, in Victoria, for example, the, the Environment Protection Authority have a um, a procedure and you sample aquatic invertebrates from midstream and, and from the edge and you identify them to family and so on. Um, we wanted to do a similar sort of thing in the Mekong and we looked at the various groups that people have used for that sort of biomonitoring. So there were aquatic insects, um, there were um, phytoplankton, there was zooplankton, there were fish and so on. Hmm. The problem is you have to be able to find someone who can actually identify the aquatic insects. Right. <laughs> um, I can, we can provide training on to how to do the sampling and, and how to analyse the data. Mm. But, you know, it, 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 it's a bit beyond MRC mm. to actually take someone and go through all the thing of, uh, of learning about aquatic insects and how you identify them or learning about um, <laughs> algae and so on. So in part, our selection of what we would use as indicators was based on um, who we could find that could actually do the work. Mm -hmm. So we found, um, uh, for one group of, of attached algae, um, the diatoms, we found a guy from, I think he was Chiang Mai University. Um, we found a couple of people from Laos who could do aquatic insects. Oh. Um, from from the literal, we found a guy. For, we found a, a girl from Vietnam who could do zooplankton. Um, there was a, a push from the countries, from some of the country governments, to say, "Oh, we want to, we want our own national teams." <laughs> but in fact, we simply couldn't find people who could do the work. <laughs> and you know, so it, 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 it becomes you know, quite a constraint mm. on what you can do. But then there's also other constraints. One of the things that we considered using as an indicator, which which would have been very good, was fish, because they're very, very important um, in the Mekong. There was a real difficulty with fish, uh, because it takes a long time to get a sample um, when you're talking about a river that's you know, three kilometres wide. Hmm. Um, Sampling is quite a challenge. And... The most straightforward um, means of sampling would have been to use something like electrofishing. Mm. Um, but the problem that we had was that uh, electrofishing is illegal in all of the Mekong countries, ah, okay. and and as it is in Australia. Yeah. Um, 
but there's also a, a cultural thing. Um, if we had got special permission and gone out and done electrofishing mm-hmm. as a sampling method, right. in Australia, when uh, if, if you're out electrofishing a river, doing a survey for the fisheries department, for example, mm-hmm. and a local fisherman, someone's got, at their fishing sees you and says, you know, what are you doing? Oh, well, we're doing a survey for the fisheries department. Mm. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, but in that region, mm-hmm. if they see you um, with government people out doing electrofishing, mm. they will assume that you're poaching. Oh, right. And wow. you telling them that you're doing it for the government won't convince them that you're not poaching. Wow. <laughs> Um, because there's a lot of illegal activity sometimes. Right, um, corruption, with, I think. With, yeah. with yeah, people mm. from government um, facilitating it or involved in it. Okay. Um, so we couldn't do that. Um, so we had to use other methods. And, and then we had difficulty finding a guy from one of the countries uh, um, that would be available um, who could actually then identify the fish. Mm. Um, and, and that was also a challenge. And, and you know, fish identification in the Murray-Darling, for example, is easy because you've only got about 30 species. <laughs> but when you've got 800, um, it's, it's quite a challenge to find, to be able to identify them. And, and, and so that was a problem as well. So uh. we, ended up, we ended up not including fish. Okay. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the, the capacity thing was a real difficulty. Mm. And capacity building in... In the countries was was really challenging and remains really challenging. Mm. Um, in part because the education systems are fairly weak, mm-hmm. um, and until the whole education systems improve, mm. then capacity building can't succeed really. Right. Um, if you think about Australia, for example, um, if there was some particular type of science that that they do very well in, in America or they do very well in China and we wanted to develop it in Australia, we could bring in we could bring out a Chinese expert or an American expert and you know if, if it's something in physics or biology or something, put them together with one of our, or, or some of our good biologists, um, and and they could learn the technique, and, and then they would continue to do it and, they, and, and pass it on. Mm. Um, the problem over there was that um, the, the, the poor quality of the schooling meant that it was difficult to find someone who could pick it up. And if they did, they would often then leave the government system and go to private consulting, and and you'd be left with some more people coming out of the school system um, that lacked capacity. Um, and so you'd, you'd have to do the whole thing all over again. Mm. Um, within the MRC, Mekong River Commission, there was a problem because they'd already decided that, that MRC should function in part as a capacity building organisation for the region. And um, so they had a limit 
any person from the four La Mekon countries who got employed could only be employed for three years um, with the potential to have that extended for a further three years. So a maximum of six years. Right. And that meant that as soon as somebody... And, it, you know, it, it could take two years, three years to train somebody and then they'd be there for three years and they would leave yeah, and you'd yeah, start all yeah. over again. Right. Um, and that that made it very difficult to build up capacity of the organisation. Would you say that capacity capacity building would be the most challenging difference in terms of all the differences stated uh, below just now? Uh, no, uh-huh. look, I think I think they're all they're all challenging. The um, it simply varies from time to time and project to project. What it what it is that becomes your biggest challenge. Right. Um, so yes, um, for for bioassessment, um, the lack of capacity was the biggest was the biggest challenge. Mm. Um, for a lot of projects, it it, it took a, it, it it was difficult to get people to appreciate the difference in socioeconomic conditions. Um, for example, the fact that in that region there are vast numbers of subsistence users of natural resources. Um, the, the fishermen on the river, that, that's, their, that's their livelihood. Um, it's, yeah. it's not like in Australia where you've got recreational fishers on the Murray-Darling. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, if, if a, a barrier goes in and... and and the fish are lost, it's a conservation issue uh, for that section of river, um, and you may well have some angry fishermen, um, but it's not like people are going to actually starve, that they're going to lose their complete livelihood. Mm. Um, and, and, but that's what happened in, in the Mekong and in, and in PNG. Um, we have you know, clashes between our states, that we see from time to time in Australia, but but there's nothing like the suspicion that you potentially have between countries that have recently been at war. So you, you've really got to... And, and, yeah, there was a, a, a great suspicion and um, concern to maintain their, their national place. So, for example, um, for the first time they've now got... Um, uh, a CEO of the MRC who is from one of those countries, one of the four member countries. But the only way they could achieve that was by having a system whereby the CEO's position will rotate through the countries in order. Mm. <laughs> um, so you can't just advertise and appoint the best person from those countries. Um, the first person is Vietnam. Um, the next CEO will have to come from Thailand. Right. With rotation um, basis, right? Yeah, yeah, right. and that's the only way they can manage it because everybody else is, is you know, too worried that that they'll miss out. Um, mm. So, you know, that, that becomes problems as well. Um, sometimes there's there's um, there's cultural differences that you've that you run into or that you become aware of. Um, we had, for example, one guy applying for a position at, at MRC. Um, he'd been working for um, MDBC at the time, 
um, the, the predecessor for um, MDBA, mm-hmm. um, in, in a, a very significant role with, with great responsibilities. Um, but when he was brought over to be to be interviewed as one of a, a group of people being interviewed for a job at MRC, um, the um, the senior person on the interview committee said, "No, we can't possibly appoint him. He's too young." Oh. <laughs> uh, he was in. He would have been late thirties or something like that. Um, yeah, this is this is a senior position. Uh, we can't possibly have someone that's that young. <laughs> he was far and away the best qualified and, and most impressive candidate that we interviewed, but he, he couldn't be considered mm. um, because seniority and, and age is really critical right. um, with, for for many people within that culture. Mm. So yeah, it, it, different things arise. And, and if you're going in as, as a foreigner, um, living there or working there, um, they're often surprising that, you know, they, they're things that you don't think of because they're different in our culture and, the, and they pop up and it's, oh, oh, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that or I hadn't realised mm. that. So it's, it's interesting. Would you be able to share briefly a case study that you have completed in that region and the direct impact it had on the local community in that you can remember clearly? It's um, it's it's fairly difficult <laughs> because in, impacts arise some time later, and um, I, I think it's one of the problems with development projects. And, and the sort of short-termism that we have in our political mm. situation that um, aid agencies in every country are always looking for, you know, um, evidence that you've had an impact yeah. within three, the three years of the project or the two years of the project or whatever. Mm. Um, I think that the TASIAT project that I was involved in um, around 2000... <clears throat> I seem to have had quite an impact and, and I was surprised and delighted to bump into, we, we um, in, in science, we worked with the deans and they identified the areas that they wanted to develop within their faculties and they all had different things but we ended up coming, I think, up with, with about seven different fields um, and, and each faculty participated in three of those and then we had some core fields that they all wanted. So that was basic math, science, biology and chemistry. Um, and oh, about three years ago, um, I was sitting on a, on a plane next to, uh, next to a woman who I recognised as the person who worked on the computing um, component. Uh, and she was still working with those same Thai universities. Wow. Um, we we recruited her. She'd never been to Asia before. Um, <laughs> had developed links with those people, um, and I've also heard from several others that, that some of the chemistry groups are also going. Um, so we've had a real impact on the research and teaching hmm. in several Thai universities. Right. That's been maintained wow. like fifteen years after the project after the project finished. Um, but I mean, one of the interesting things at the time, one of the one of the um, staff in one of the Thai universities said to us was that 
he thought this project would make a very big difference um, to the work in his university, but you wouldn't see the difference for 10 years hmm. because they had to wait until the senior staff retired <laughs> before they could implement these things. <laughs> Wow. And and I used to talk to the Thais about <laughs> the, their great king King Chulalongkorn, who was who was around um, around about nineteen hundred, uh-huh. and and he's he's a man um, credited with modernising Thailand. Thailand, yeah. Um, a, a really interesting guy. Uh, he he fended off the colonial nations, and one of the ways he did that was by doing a tour through Europe. Hmm. And once he'd been um, uh, received at the royal courts in Great Britain and Russia and, and uh, in, in France and Germany, mm. then they could no longer pretend that Thailand was a bunch of savages and we can just take over the country because they'd <laughs> recognised the ruler. So right. that, was, that was clever. But but the story was that when King Chulongkorn first came to power, he wanted to imp- change things and, and make things more efficient and... and um, when he started to do that, he ran into massive resistance from the powerful families that held the senior positions um, mm. in the in the Thai government at the time. Mm. And so he stopped. And for 30 years, he did nothing. He just went, let things go the way they always had. But over that 30 years, he put his brothers into all the key positions. Mm. And then... At the end of 30 years, when he'd got all the key positions, then he did the changes. Right. And the important thing was that he was patient, um, but that in all that period when he wasn't doing anything, he didn't lose his vision. Mm. It, was, it was always a plan. Mm. This is what I'm going to do, but in order to do it, I need to, to do this. take my yeah. time, mm. get the key people in place, then I can then I can implement it, right. <laughs> and, and I mean I'm I'm impressed by his patience, <laughs> but I'm also impressed by the fact that he didn't get sucked in by the existing system, yeah, yeah. which would be so would have been so easy so to do. Easy, yeah. he, he actually yeah. maintained the thing of where he wanted to go, but I've just got to wait my time until I can successfully bring that change about. <laughs> Very interesting. I guess one of the things that I think is is Important is that that um, lots of projects start out with with very grand ideas, and people go into them thinking that they're going to make a, a huge change and have a huge influence. A huge impact. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but they won't certainly at least to begin with, mm. um, and you have to uh, yeah focus on. Um, Helping, helping one person or one small change, and hopefully planting some seeds that can lead to bigger change in the future. If you have advice, a piece of advice for water practitioners looking to work in the Mekong region, what would that be, and why? Everything depends on who you know. Um, mm. Over there, as it does here, so it's a matter of um, trying to develop some linkages. Right. Um, that might involve making some trips over there to meet people. Mm. It might involve um, uh, getting in contact with people in Australia 
who have already worked there, um, mm. trying to couple with them. Um, you need you need to be patient, but you need to meet people and to get known. Um, it happens um, equally here, but but it's even more important over there. Yep. Um, and you you may need to do something different than you would. Um, that you would normally uh, do in Australia. That you want yeah. to do yeah. um, to get your foot in the door. Right. So basically, relationships is key working in that region. Oh, absolutely. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. And and you know that's um, that, that's pretty much how I got started um, by the fact that I'd done some work with the ties and they knew me, and then I knew some other people who'd worked with the Mekong River Commission. Um, and, you know, I had that experience in the region of working in Thailand that then um, allowed me to um, uh, to get the job with the MRC because one of their criteria was to know something or have worked in that region. Um, and, and so, and, and, you know, get involved in, in participating in workshops and and uh, those sort of activities over there if you can if you can afford to do that um, so that you get known by the people um, over there. Um, um, that becomes very important then when you're um, applying for projects. Is there any last uh, last words that you'd like to say regarding your insights and experience working in the region and about retro ecology, your, your services that you can provide to the community? The region that we're in is a really important region. The, the southeast Asian area have got really big challenges um, that people in Australia have got a lot of experience um, and a lot of understanding and a lot of knowledge that can really contribute um, into that area. Hmm. We need to be um, very sensitive about the way that we offer that knowledge because just as we wouldn't welcome someone coming from another country and telling us that they know everything. Um, mm. The people in that region are not looking for Australians to come in and tell them what to do. Um, but we do have um, some very valuable skills in the water area and very valuable understanding in the water area um, and making that available to people over there I think is a, is a really important and valuable thing that Australia can do. Okay. All right. All right, Ian, that concludes our interview today. Thank you all so right. much for your time and sharing all your insights. Keeney is an initiative of the Australian Water Partnership and the International Water Centre Alumni Network. Keeney connects water managers and shares knowledge throughout the Asia-Pacific. Visit our website at keeney.org.au for more information and for videos, articles, news and more.